So let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you so much that ancient stories are a part of our present story, that they are not far away, but they're close by, and it's because of you. You tie us together with our past. You tie it into our present, and it gives us a glimmer, a glimpse, a invitation into the future, and we're so grateful for that. My prayer today, oh God, is that every person in this room would be able to, for an hour or so, lay down what they brought in with them. We all carry heavy loads, whether it's visible or not. But to lay that down for just an hour or so, so that we can listen to what you speak to us, so that we can receive the love that is provided to us in friendships around the tables. And God, if somebody here needs to be heard and seen, but hides themselves for fear of being a burden or um, not wanting to be that vulnerable, we pray, God, that one of us will pay such close attention that we'll ask a question or move in a little closer or hold a hand, or put an arm around a shoulder. God, we know that there are so many layers to every story in this room. And we pray that we would never take for granted that we know somebody else, what they're going through, what they're experiencing, just on a surface level, but that you invite us into a deeper relationship, an intimate one with our sisters in Christ. And so God, bless us, we pray, with hearts that are open and minds that are nimble and ready to receive what the Holy Spirit has to say for us. And we ask all of these things in the name of Christ, amen. Yeah, I had to run back up and get my glasses because we got a lot of reading to do today. But we're not gonna do it in quite the same way. I just wanted to just share with you briefly how we're gonna do today. We're going to, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to just do a brief intro to chapter 45, then we're going to read chapter 45, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Then we'll go back and read 46 and 47, and I'll tell you why. 45 is, is, carries with it the most important um, aspect of this whole narrative. It carries with it the answers, it carries with it some of the basic questions, Everything is packed into 45, and then 46 and 47 trail behind that and pick up some of the loose pieces. So we're going to spend the majority of our time together in chapter 45, and that's why I'm splitting it up that way. So, um, But first, I'd like to just kind of introduce it. So what we know is that the narrative, this, and when I say narrative, what I'm talking about is the story. This whole story of Joseph that started back in chapter 37. Do you remember that? Started when he was 17, at least the scriptures say. And um, when he was sharing with his brothers and his, his father and his family about that he was going to be, you know, everybody was going to be bowing to him. So that started way back in 37. But we have waited since chapter 37 to find out what this dream was really all about. To find out the power of this dream. 
And, and the dream indirectly has concerned rule over Egypt, and that was kind of fleshed out and established in chapters 39 through 41. And then we moved over to rule over family. So we have empire and family. Those are the two running themes. And the, and the rule over the family was advanced in chapters 42 through 44. But in all of those chapters, as they talked about his rule, none of the players in that are yet aware of that there's a link between the dream and between the promise. Now, do you remember what the promise is? The promise is what you kind of started off Genesis with. The promise was to Abraham. Do you remember? Yeah, the promise was that the, there'd be many nations, as many people under the, you know, as there are stars in the sky and sand on the shore, that, in other words, that the Hebrew people would flourish and that it, they would not die out. And now they're in a position right now where it's looking very grim and they're not sure how that's going to, but they haven't made the link to Joseph's dream, to the promise and how it's already being played out, even as, even right before their eyes. And they, even Joseph hasn't made that link yet, but in 45, there will be a grand aha and that, that um, uh, link will be established. So, uh, in this chapter, we come to the primary resolution of the entire Joseph narrative. Everything before in this story has pointed towards this chapter, chapter 45. And everything after this is a derivative of 45. That means all the loose change that comes after is derived out of chapter 45. That's why we're going to spend so much time with 45. And in this chapter itself, our main attention is verses 1 through 15. So when we come to reading that chapter, I want you to pay special attention as we go through 1 through 15, why this would be lifted out as the singular most important uh, passage of this entire narrative. And in the remainder of the chapter, after verse 15, the twin themes of empire and family are played out respectively. Uh, we'll talk about the empire, but then they derive, uh, but these derive from the stunning disclosure of verses 1 through 15. So, the, uh, so we come to reading the chapter. Are you ready for that? Okay. So chapter 45. Oh, let me, let me set it up for you like, like they do on the television, okay? So right before this, actually right before this, we know that Benjamin, you know, is, is, um, uh, is the focal point. And Judah, who we don't know, I mean, really Judah is the one who um, um, was the one brother that we keep hearing about. And so Judah makes this impassioned plea to Joseph to say, please don't, you know, I cannot come back without my brother, that I can't, Benjamin can't, we can't take Benjamin away from my father. And Judah before says to his father, dad, if I don't bring back, if I don't bring Benjamin back, take and kill my two sons, which I'm sure need a family therapy after that. But, but then Judah also says, Jacob, to his dad, he says, listen, 
I'll stay in his place. I'll be his slave. I'll be the slave to his master. So Judah makes this impassioned plea and says, Jacob will die if you take away his, his son. So right after that, we come to 45 and it says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. That's significant. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. You can only imagine. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you, you must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me so that I may give you the best of the land of Egypt and you may enjoy the fat of the land. You are further charged to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Give no thought to your possessions for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the instruction of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each one of them he gave a set of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five sets of garments. To his father he sent the following, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys, indicating, of course, you know, longevity, to keep, continue to provide for them loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Do not quarrel along the way. 
So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Oh, can you imagine? They had to tell him that. He is even ruler over all the land of Egypt. He was stunned. He could not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Israel said, enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. Wow. Oh, my gosh. This terrible secret that they had been carrying all of these years is finally out in the open. And what will come of this? This moving appeal of Judah was the trigger for this disclosure scene. The abrupt disclosure follows appropriately after his eloquent plea. But if you look at it in a larger context, the whole story has been leading up to this moment, this climactic moment, that what we call the denouement. And that means the moment where everything is made clear, is, is made obvious. So, and the narrator has held off on this pivotal moment until the very last moment, kept us on a cliffhanger. We didn't know what was going to happen. And now at this moment when Joseph could hold it in no longer, then it all comes to light. So, and those who have entered into the tragedy of this family, a family that's been driven by a dream to conflict and fear and betrayal, they're now prepared to take a turn in their lives. So in a single artistic moment, the entire plot is made visible in just a single moment. And in this scene, the plot is larger than every player, including Joseph. So first, let's consider the particular cast of verses 1 through 8. Now, verses 1 through 15 are the central core narrative of the entire story of Joseph. But chapters 1 through 8, they are the key verses out of 1 through 15. In this critical scene, the disclosure for the family, not the empire, it is for the Hebrews, not the Egyptians. We're going back to the old tradition. And how do we know it wasn't for the Egyptians? Because they were sent out of the room. They're not a part of this conversation. The controlling agenda is the way the family is governed by the dream and the way this family chafes under the dream. And what is revealed here is not for the eyes of the empire of Egypt. The listening community, that's us, we didn't have to leave the room. We were invited to stay and understand We've been invited to be a part of the family. And listen, here's just something for us to pay attention to. We are permitted at this moment of disclosure to witness a gospel disclosure. It's a divine theme that we will see carried out throughout scripture up until the, the ultimate carry out of this theme. And this is what it is. The dead one is alive. It's a resurrection story. The dead one is alive. The abandoned one has returned in power. And the dream has had its way. That's a gospel theme. 
That's the theme that's carried out again and again till we come to even to the person of Jesus. The dead one is alive. He has the power. And the dream, God's promise, is still in shape. So there's three rhetorical matters that shape this disclosure. And those are the three I'd like to kind of pay attention to. There's self-proclamation, which is very important. There's the power to break from the past and shape the future. That's number two. And number three is the commission of Joseph. And that's what we'll talk about in just a minute. So first, in verse three, and more fully in verse four, the dead one that's now alive discloses his identity. He says, I am Joseph. Now, this is a standard formula in biblical literature of self-disclosure that's even used to, for when God is speaking. Do you remember when Moses is at the uh, burning bush and, the, and God within that bush is saying, you know, go down to Egypt and get my people? Funny, that's tied together. And, Joseph sa- and Moses says, who shall I say send me? What does God say? Tell them, I am. I am, and then on this, I am Joseph. So he, it's not just a, um, uh, it, it, it's not just an introduction. Hey, I'm Joseph. No, he is saying who he is uh, with a lot of uh, meat to that. It's a standard uh, proclamation. It's a royal form of pro- proclamation. So the writers of these, when they proclaim this, it is, it's the royal form, and it's obviously more than an introduction. It is a self-assertion, a self-assertion, which serves to reshape and redefine the whole situation. You see, when he says, I am Joseph, everything changes in that moment. Everything. Everything in the past for these brothers changes everything in the present and everything in the future. The key fact in the life of this family is that they must now live with the reality of an alive, powerful, ruling Joseph. That's who, they no longer have this image of the 17-year-old boy they threw in a pit and betrayed. This is the ruler before them. What on earth is going to happen now? There's something going on in which the brothers had long since disposed of, although they really hadn't, had they? They thought they got rid of all their problems when they got rid of Joseph, but they didn't. Here is the hiddenness of God at work brought to light. This is where we see God's work brought to light. All these things that the humans have been doing, kind of navigating through this betrayal and mistrust and guilt and shame and all of this, and all the while, God had been laying down these footstones, these these rocks across this this lake of shame and, and, and deceit and all of this in order for us to step across to the promise that was coming. So everything has been brought to light now. And all of a sudden, wait, wait, this is part of a bigger picture. The terror and the astonishment of the brothers, as some have commented, is not unlike that of the early church when Jesus disclosed himself to them. It is I. It's me. Jesus, put your hands here. Put your hands here. And, and their astonishment and their fear, uh, you can imagine. We, if you thought somebody was dead and they walked up to you and said, I am here, <laughs> I'm alive. 
the family is suddenly set in a new context. And their presumed world, what they thought was going to be happening, is irreversibly shattered forever. They had yet to discover that this assertion is a complete break with the past. They didn't trust that. They didn't trust it because, you know, quite frankly, they feared that Joseph was, this was kind of a ploy that even if they believed that he was their brother, what, were, what was he going to do to them because of that? And, you know, honestly, they had good reason, first of all, because of what they did. But second of all, the way Joseph had treated them so far. Joseph had lied to them. Joseph had imprisoned them. Joseph had kidnapped the, uh, one of the, you know, uh, had framed them and blackmailed them. I mean, he'd done all kinds of things to them. So they didn't really believe him. They feared that the lie Joseph would exploit and act out the past. But Joseph doesn't. He breaks completely with the past. And that's what creates and shapes an opportunity for the future. He invites his brothers to put behind them that pitiful past. And, and honestly, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Shame and guilt is easy. It's very easy to say, oh, don't even think about that anymore. But we hang on. And you'll see when you get to 5017, I want you to pay attention to that. I want you to pay attention to that verse. When Jack takes you there, you're going to come up to 5017 where you're going to see that Indeed, things have worked out for them, but the brothers have not been able to let go of their shame. So here, Joseph, what Joseph does at this point is he opens up the future. All of a sudden, it doesn't have to be what it was going to be. There's a new future, and it opens it up for Joseph as well. His self-announcement in regal language is the beginning of a new possibility. What could this mean for this Bedouin nomadic tribe of people. The new possibility doesn't come from anything done by the brothers, because we know the brothers, they they were like shlemiels at this point. They just said, oh, we've done something bad. We've deceived our father. We're not, we're not worthy of carrying, you know, of carrying the promise and the promise is it even real anymore. We're not sure. And so, I mean, at least that's the picture that's painted. It's much more complicated than that as human beings are. But that's the picture that's painted. It's not because of anything they did. It's a, a gift that's wrapped in the speech of their brother. And the second rhetorical device, so that was the first one, the, uh, the self-proclamation. The second device, the power to create newness. The narrative asserts that Joseph can speak a word which creates newness. And this goes back to Genesis 1, when God spoke a word and created newness, created the world, created us. So this goes all the way back to, so you see Genesis holds on to its own themes. And Genesis, the writers, all of these writers, the Yahwistic, the Elohistic, the Deuteronomic, the Priestly, all of them, they, it, it, in this beautiful blend, even though sometimes it's confusing because they tell two or three stories in the same chapter, even though it's confusing, it seems to work. And we get a fuller picture of what's happening. That's why in 45, 1 through 15, is structurally at the center of the entire Joseph narrative because of all that. In the speech of Joseph, the power of the conspiracy of chapter 37, uh, their plan for Joseph is broken. And, and the break with that awful deed comes in this lordly speech. 
but his regal speech is based on a flood of emotion and passion. And this is something different. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, we are released from this urbane, suave, sophisticated, cool, detached Joseph. We're released from that. And all of a sudden, I'm not kidding, we are thrust back into that gritty, dirt, passion-filled you know, experience that we had with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, and they're wrestling with angels, and they're going up staircases, and I mean, they're doing all kinds of stuff. All of a sudden, we have, we have this to grab hold of again, and it's so beautiful. Joseph's speech is filled with passion. And there's much at stake for him and his brothers and his father in the way he takes this opportunity. You know, Martin Luther um, observed once that when this brother announces himself, he doesn't use his Egyptian name. And of course, that makes sense because he's announcing himself to his brothers. But it's noteworthy to say that the Egyptian name, Zafneth Panea, means the one who discovers hidden things. He identifies himself as Joseph. And if you remember back when we talked about that, his name means added. The one that's added by God. The surplus of meaning and joy and hope that's given to the family of faith. So the power to create newness doesn't come from detachment. It doesn't come from being sophisticated in your thinking, in your mind, and you've got it all nailed down. It comes from risky, self-disclosing, vulnerable engagement. Let that be a lesson to us. To not detach, to not step away, to not be cool and calm and collected. Let's get in there and wrestle and rumble with each other. Joseph's speech pattern echoes the speech of Yahweh, elsewhere as the salvation oracles of second Isaiah. And what do I mean by that? He talks about what what God has intended in this uh, um, uh, third rhetorical device that he uses, which is the commission of Joseph. And in this, he's talking backwards about what God has done. And in the salvation oracles of Isaiah, God is talking forwards about what God is doing. So this is uh, the commission of Joseph is the announcement of verses 5b through 8. This is where there's this grand aha moment that the narrator has inserted in here for Joseph. This is when Joseph gets it. Joseph says, oh, there's a link between the dream and the promise. Oh, there's a link between the promise and between the God of my fathers. Oh, I'm a part of that. This is when he finally gets it. So, verse 5, And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For it was God who sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Finally, we see Joseph thinking that dream was not about him being the ruler, the father, the Lord. It was about God appointing him. Finally, Joseph has made that link. The narrator has Joseph make the main point. 
and it's three, and he makes it three times. Do you remember that really literally in scripture that we've seen before? In Genesis particularly, they always use twice to confirm. You know, we saw that in the dreams. There's always two dreams. One dream confirms the other dream. We saw that in the chiasmus. There's a statement said, and there's a statement. Then they switch it over, and we say it backwards. So it's always two. Here, the narrator doesn't do it once. He doesn't do it twice. He does it three times to make sure that we get it, to make sure that we understand this is the key speech in the entire Joseph narrative. It's five through eight. And maybe he understood this before and he kept it all to himself. Maybe he did that. But it's more than likely that he didn't even get it. He didn't even know it until his brothers came in. And all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. I think I had a dream about this. And then it's like, wait a minute. I think we've lived our whole life with, with Jacob holding on to a promise about this. And he makes his grand leap. Beep, 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 beep. Interrupt this program from a special announcement. That's exactly how it was for the family. This revelation is breaking news to the entire family. The brothers are standing. I mean, if you had like that camera again, they'd be going, oh, oh, you know, and panning from each person to say, what, what, yee And all of a sudden, and it's from this quite secular way that all of a sudden we are aware of this. The speech completely redefines the situation for all the parties. Now, the guilty fear of the brothers is old and irrelevant news. Forget it, Joseph says. The grief of the father is resolved. I am, our brother is alive. He had grieved unnecessarily for what seemed death was God's way to life. And the revengeful cunning of the successful brother is old and relevant also. He no longer has that drive to get back at his brothers. It's, he has no need to triumph over his family. The guilt of the brothers, the grief of the father, and the revenge of Joseph are all means for the disclosure of the hidden call of God. Now, did God cause those things to happen? See, this is the, this is the tricky part. God does not manipulate us, but God can work within the story that we are writing to redeem it and to make good of it. Does that make sense? So God didn't manipulate Joseph to do this. God didn't make the brothers throw him in the pit so he could advance his whatever. But God was at work behind the scenes and the hearts and the minds and the lives and the decisions all along the way. None of that matters now, for the whole family has been brought to a new moment. And the purposes of God have been at work in and with and under all this human drama. So in the threefold purposes of God, God sent me before you to preserve life. What does that mean? He sent me before you so that I could get prepared for this famine so the Hebrew people aren't going to die out. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, meaning there's going to be hard times ahead. There's going, and we're going to be talking about remnants and survivors. And we're going to survive that also. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So the first two concern the future of Israel, the promise. They announce unambiguously that God wills and works life with people. The technical term remnant and survivors are an assurance of a future against heavy odds. And the third statement, 
turns to empire. Again, the twin themes of family and empire have been brought together. And the culminating word, if you remember way back in the dream that he had, what was the, the main thing that we came out of that with was one word, and it was ruler. Ruler. That's what the dream was saying to us. That's what, and that's what Joseph has been on this trajectory. Not only is he a ruler now, he's, he's Lord, Father, and ruler over all things. It's been the crucial word since the dream in chapter 37. And the use of this world of this word marks an arc of continuity between 37 and 45. I mean, this is like brilliant literature. It's a continuity that we can see. Now he is ruler, lord, and father, not just over the family, but over the entire empire. And it's the work of God. This is the difference between that Joseph and the Joseph of 37, where Joseph felt that he was being appointed, that he was meant to be the Lord and ruler over all for himself. That was for his own self-aggrandizement, and he did it for himself. In this, what he's saying is, yes, I am Lord and Father and ruler of all because God has done it. All of a sudden, Joseph has come to his senses. He, before, he lost his mind a little bit. And now he's come to his senses. It's God that's a part of this. And so the remainder of this chapter explores the implications of the new world that's made available to his family. Joseph's plan receives royal sanction. I mean, they couldn't have been more uh, welcomed by um, Pharaoh. And they're provided with the best land and storehouse. And the poverty-stricken, hunger-ridden people now are richly blessed. And this is a gift. And Joseph points out, this is a gift not from me, but from God. So the other development from verses 1 through 15 is that they report back to Father Jacob. He's stunned, but eventually he believes the news. And, jo and Jacob speaks like a father. But more than that, he's not just any father. He speaks as the voice of the whole future uh, and the whole present tribes of Israel. The, he speaks as the father of promise. He has waited his whole life to see how God is going to work this mess out. At some point, I'm sure that he was struggling and saying, I don't know how we're going to go. I don't know how we're going to flourish. My heart is broken. Joseph's not gone. And so he was grieving. But he speaks now as someone who is sure that the promise is intact and that the future is intact for the next generation. So we see the future. So the journey that Jacob now undergoes is like that of a shepherd who must also go. Let me take you back to Luke and, Ma and, and um, Matthew. When the shepherds were on the hillside and the angels appeared, do you know what the angel, what the shepherds said? They said, let us go and see what God has done. Let us, let us not waste a minute. Let's get there and see what God has brought to us. And this scripture, one wonders, how these scriptures, they, they echo with each other. So Jacob says to, like them, Jacob also says, let's go, let's go right this minute. And they could do that. They were, they were Bedouins. They were nomads. They could pick up. They could pick up all of the thousands of people that were with them to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known. And like the shepherds on the hillside, Jacob wants to see for himself the birth of his son.
the rebirth of his son. So God's hidden, determined work not only assures food from Pharaoh to the family, it also brings life to this hopeless father. With the primary dramatic conclusion of the Joseph narrative reached in 45, 1 through 15, what we see in the remaining material of 46 through 50 settles issues between the generations. And, and thus, with the look to the past, there has to be a settlement of Jacob and the tribe in Egypt and his death and his burial. And a look to the future, there has to be a blessing for the generations to come. So chapters 46 and 47 will address those outstanding matters. So we close out on 45. And, and we took, I, I want you not to be, do not be afraid. I am not going to take that much time with 46 and 47 because they're very different chapters. So I think, I think we're, we're doing pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, so we, now we're going to read chapters 46 and 47, but I want to make a, a preliminary, um, uh, just a preliminary note for you right now before we get to it so that you, it may answer a question for you. The, Joseph will tell his brothers, tell Pharaoh your, sheep, your, your shepherds. And there's a reason for that. You know, back in, in Canaan, they were farmers, they were shepherds, I'm sure they were craftsmen, they, were, they did everything. But what Joseph knew about Pharaoh was, first of all, that they couldn't own land when they came. So it would be Pharaoh providing the land for them. They couldn't make a stake and they couldn't take jobs away from the Egyptians. So what he said was, be shepherd, tell them you're shepherds and that you're going to be willing to shepherd the flocks of the Egyptians, that's what that's set up for. Because otherwise there would, be, uh, there would be the migration questions that we are even struggling with today. I mean, there, it just would be. So let's come to 46 and 47. When Israel set out on his journey with all that he had come to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, oh, isn't this, doesn't this feel good to be back here where God is actually speaking one-on-one? -on -one? <laughs> okay, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring, also bring you up again, and Joseph's own hand shall close your eyes. You see, Jacob was afraid to leave this land. This land had been promised to them by God, and if they left it, were they leaving the promised land? And God was saying, no, you're not going to be leaving the promised land. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods that they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with them, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all this offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And even though they mention the daughters, the daughters are not named, nor are they counted 
in all of the counts that come up. There's one daughter that's named Dinah, and that's because of an incident that happened with her. But when you come to these numbers, well, the numbers aren't accurate anyway, but when you come to these numbers and you come to the naming, none of the women are being named. So, you know, just kind of double that. So now these are the names of the Israelites, Jacob and his offspring who came to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the children of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the children of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Joaquin, Zohar, and Shual, the son of Canaanite woman, the children of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the children of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the children of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the children of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yashub, and Shimron, the children of Zebulun, Zered, Elon, and Jahil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. In all his sons and his daughters, numbered 33. The children of Gad, Ziphron, Haggai, Shuni, Ezron, Eri, Ohodi, and Areli. The children of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Isvi, Birha, and their sister Sarah. The children of Berea, Heber, Malkiel, these are the children of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The children of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. To Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And the children of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Eha, Rosh, Mupin, Humpin, and Ard. These are the children of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The children of Dan, Hoshim, the children of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Yezer, Chilam. These are the children of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, who were his own offspring, not including the wives of his sons, were 66 persons in all. The children of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So Israel sent Judah ahead to Joseph to lead the way before him into Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to, my eyes are starting to fail me, and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, I can die now, having seen for myself that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and he will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. So Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. From among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our ancestors were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to reside as aliens in the land, but there is no pastor for your servants, flocks, 
because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now we ask you, let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know that there are capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Just what he planned. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my earthly sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life. They do not compare with the years of the life of my ancestors during their long sojourn. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt, in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money from the land of Egypt and from the land of Canaan was spent, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give me your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. That year, he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, before we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on that allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Now that I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you. Sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the land, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. They said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be slaves to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the region of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied exceedingly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time of Israel's death drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, 
if I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal loyally and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Wow. Can you believe everything that just happened? So here's the thing about verses, uh, chapters 46 and 47, is that they have a very miscellaneous feeling to them. It's kind of like when you've moved someplace, and I know all of you have at one point, if you're like me, it's, I hate it more than unloading the dishwasher. I hate packing and moving. And the thing I hate most about moving is when you get all the big stuff done, what are you left with? All that little stuff you don't know what to do with. But anyway, so 46 and 47 are kind of like all the stuff that they have to deal with. That, that after they pack the big stuff, now they're unpacking the, the little stuff. So it doesn't have a, that, it has that miscellaneous quality. There doesn't seem to be any artistic like coherence to it. The power of the sustained narrative that we, is largely exhausted by chapter 45. And because these chapters seem to be a collection of kind of incidental elements, there, there's not really an overall structure to them. But what can we de derive from these three themes? And there's three themes that emerge. The first is the family theme concerned with Jacob. And the second is the imperial theme concerned with Joseph, how Joseph is doing. Joseph continues to be looking out for Pharaoh's best uh, interest and trying to look out for his people's best interest. So he's in this tension place. And that's what this chapter, that's what this is all about. How does he hold these two things in tension? How do the Hebrew people who are now being assimilated into Egyptian life, how are they holding on to their Hebrewness? The family theme uh, with Jacob and the empire. So in relation to these three themes, Jacob functions as a mouthpiece for tradition. He's the one that keeps speaking about uh, the promise, the promise tradition. Joseph demonstrates his mastery at, um, of the Egyptian enterprise. He, he develops a sharecropping uh, um, enterprise. That's what, really what it is. They become sharecroppers on Pharaoh's land, and then they pay a tithe to Pharaoh. And then the brothers are kind of thrust into a dilemma between the faith of their fathers and the success of the dream brother, with the accompanying temptation of the empire. So we understand that it's hundreds of years later that Exodus unfolds. So what has happened to them meanwhile? They, they become assimilated and they begin to lose some of their Hebrewness. So the narratives concerning Jacob form the framework for these two chapters. At the beginning, there's a theophany, and we haven't seen that in a long time. Theophany is when God uh, uh, appears, whether auditory or visually, or in some way that is that that is not your normal everyday course, but appears directly to a person. And we haven't seen that theophany in a long time. But at the very beginning, there's a theophany, and it's it's the theophany is the voice of God speaking to Jacob and saying, "It's okay. You can go down there. You're still going to have the promised land. The promise is still enacted." So, and at the end, there is closure to his life with the provision that he's going to be brought back to Canaan to be buried. So it's bookended. 
uh, his life is bookended there. So set between these is the one other Jacob episode is the encounter with Pharaoh. And it's a very interesting encounter. I don't know if you caught it or not. So the theophany and, and the corresponding sojourn now turn the focus of, of us from Joseph to Israel. And Israel being the person of Jacob, but also the people of Israel. So remember, they're using those interchangeably now. It's not just one person. It is one person. So it's both. So this narrative is placed here to assert that the old promise of Genesis 12 through 36 are still intact. They, the narrator wants you to make sure that you didn't get lost in all this Egyptian shenanigans, that the promise is still true from the very beginning to this, that God still vouches for them. They're still his people. And that going to Egypt, uh, that is, leaving the land of promise, doesn't jeopardize the promise. So it's likely that the differences that we experience between this, this earthy uh, faith life of Jacob and this kind of more suave, cool, detached life of Joseph, it reflects maybe two different kinds of literature that's inter interspersed here, written by different uh, sources. But the Jacob stories, including this one, belong to an old saga tradition in which theophanies, explicit promises from God are not unusual. You know, they just appear and God is there and you're here and and it just, it's like normal. But in contrast, the Joseph materials reflects a much more urbane and sophisticated, not superior, but nothing ever directly happens. So the dream report is as close as the Joseph narrative gets to that, but it really doesn't because it's not God speaking in the dream. So when Jacob is present, so we'll go back to Jacob and the Pharaoh, that little interaction. There is... Um, uh, when Jacob and Pharaoh are put together, you have these two uh, elements. The one, Pharaoh, embodies what is secure and royal and condescending. Oh, how old are you, by the way? You know, so nice to have you in my land. And I'm going to give you all of this. So, and then we have the other, which is precarious and unstable and supplicating. We're here because we need something, and we're a nomadic tribe, and we don't have any houses back home, and, you know, we have our houses on the backs of our donkeys and all this. But though there are generations away from the exodus it reckoned by the memory of Israel in the shaping of the literature, the meeting of Pharaoh and Jacob is only three pages away from, from exodus. So as it turns out, it's Jacob the one who's precarious and unstable and supplicating, who turns and blesses the Pharaoh. That, that's a big deal, because the one who blesses is really the one who's in charge. And when you think about it, think about this. Have we not seen this before? Where we have this person who's in charge of everything and says, I have the power to do this and do this. And the other person says, you don't have any power except what's been given you by God. That's Jesus and, and Pilate. And here we have Jacob and the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh's going, yeah, it's my land and whatever. And, and Jacob says, well, maybe that's true, but we have a promise. So um, the, the reference is, is the powerful gift entrusted to this family. And perhaps the, the turn toward oppression reflected in Exodus, and this is something to pay attention to, because was it Pharaoh who introduced the uh, taking everybody who didn't have any money and livestock into slavery. Was it Pharaoh who came up with that idea? No, 
It was not Pharaoh. The people, first of all, came up with the idea themselves, and it was Joseph who enacted it, although Joseph made it a little more humane. But Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, is living dangerously near the brink of Egyptianization. What can I do to promote e Egypt and promote the promise of the people here? So the narrative approaches its conclusion. The promise remains intact. We've had the dream, the dream has reached its fulfillment, and now the promise is on the move. It's on the move. But it's in jeopardy from compromise if they're not careful. So the old man, Jacob, dies steady in the promise. Yet the son has experienced something of the imperial alternative. The choices are subtle, and they're not made all at once, and the outcome is uncertain. Once again, we're left with what? on earth is going to happen? Could it be that the subtle tempting of Genesis 3, where, they, where human beings are tempted with a desire to have more than they have, could that temptation be raising its ugly head again? And well, let's see when we get to chapter 48, 49, and 50. Okay, we're done, yay! It's a lot to process, but isn't it so rich? Isn't it so fascinating and just so relevant? So I hope that that was helpful to you. And I'd like to just offer a word of prayer before you go to your groups. And thank you so much for having me just jump in into these last few weeks. And it's just been such a pleasure and such a joy. And you're all just so... You know, I can see it on your faces. You're listening. You're eager to know some lights are coming on for you. And I just think God is at work in the room, work in the room. And I think that's just so beautiful. So let me, let me bless us. We thank you, God, for the blessing of your presence, that you're already here blessing this space before we even arrived. And you have blessed this space while we're here. And you will bless us as we carry this space of your love with us as we leave this place. Thank you, God, for this in, incredible story. And thank you that there, are, there is so much more to unfold. There is so much more to look at, so much more to see and learn and grow. And we thank you, God, that we are on this never-ending journey until we end in your arms. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.